Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is entitled Little Children in God's Kingdom, the Holy Grail of Human Greatness, and is based upon the lecture readings for Sunday, September 24, 2006. As a campus minister with InterVarsity at Stanford, in the fall of 1997, we piloted a faculty fellowship specifically for professors. About a dozen faculty began a breakfast meeting every Friday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. in the faculty club. A year later, a Tuesday morning group started in the Bing dining room at the hospital for medical faculty and physicians. Then a few years later, a Thursday group emerged at Stanford's Linear Accelerator for the physics crowd. We began with little idea whether the idea would work, much less flourish. But across the next six years, perhaps a hundred professors, research fellows, lecturers, physicists, and visiting faculty joined us at one time or another. When we started, most people didn't know each other, so every Friday a different professor shared his or her Christian story. The very first Friday morning, Doug disarmed everyone with a candid account of his disintegrating marriage. The following week, Tony related his frustrations with raising teenagers. Another person recounted his financial failures. In the succeeding months, it became clear that these remarkably gifted people who had reached the pinnacle of professional success were more interested in sharing their lives rather than in sharing ideas. The group took on a distinctly pastoral rather than academic tone. How do you balance personal and professional responsibilities? How do spouses negotiate dual careers with heavy demands? What advice might an older professor give to a younger scholar facing the tenure process? Does God care about my neuroscience research? I still remember the morning that Chuck spoke for so many of those exceptionally gifted and gracious professors when he noted with his trademark sardonic wit that, quote, behind every man there often lies a trail of human wreckage, end quote. Given a safe space that offered Christian encouragement, the Stanford professors experienced the message of Jesus that Mark articulates in his gospel this week, namely that the holy grail of human greatness that we so honor, envy, and pursue, things like rank, wealth, recognition, power, title, privilege, and prestige, all these can exact a very high personal price. Worldly greatness has a limited capacity to nourish authentic human fulfillment. It doesn't protect us from human vulnerabilities, and it often prevents us from experiencing God's kingdom. To make this point, by his words and actions, Jesus radically reversed our normal ideas about greatness and taught that insignificant children epitomized the ethos of his kingdom. Three different times in Mark's gospel, Jesus warned his twelve disciples about the doom that awaited him in Jerusalem. Betrayal, condemnation, suffering, rejection, violent death, and then finally resurrection. 
all three times the disciples responded to Jesus with objections, disbelief, fear, and ignorance. They demonstrated just how badly they misunderstood the true nature of his redemptive mission. After his first passion prediction, Jesus rebuked Peter for trying to prevent his sufferings. You do not have in mind the things of God, said Jesus, but the things of man, Mark 9.33. After the third prediction, James and John asked Jesus for positions of glory, whereupon the other ten disciples indignantly objected. They were clearly, clearly worried that James and John might gain some advantage over them. And after the second prediction, which is the gospel for this week, the disciples argued among themselves about who was the greatest, Mark 9, verse 34. Whereas in predicting his death, Jesus signaled that his kingdom was characterized by self-sacrificial service for others, the disciples jockeyed for human glory and greatness. Jesus responded to his disciples in two ways. First, he gave them a teaching. We read in Mark 9:35, Calling the twelve to himself, Jesus said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. Second, Jesus enacted or dramatized a parable. He placed a little child before the disciples, then took the child into his arms and said, Whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Mark 9.37 In Matthew's parallel version of this same passage, Jesus says slightly differently, quote, Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18.3 and then, just one page later in Mark's Gospel, the disciples rebuked people who brought little children to Jesus so that he would bless them. We read in Mark 10, 13 to 16, When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. To welcome a child is to extend the simplest of acts to an individual that society normally dismisses as perhaps cute, but ultimately insignificant. Someone who entirely lacks any accomplishments, greatness, status, or pretensions. And by extension, Jesus invites us to welcome every person in the same manner, without regard for external measures of their worldly importance, status, success, or failure. Lately, I've tried the following experiment. Whenever I'm repulsed by a homeless bum who loiters near our home, or nurse a grudge against a friend who spurned me, or envy someone more successful than I am, I try to picture that person as a little baby or child, for indeed such they once were. I then find it far easier to welcome or to receive them only as a precious human being, rather than as someone who can help or harm me, as someone I might ignore, fear, or flatter.
The simple act of welcoming another person in that way, Jesus says, is to welcome him and in turn to welcome God the Father who sent him. Similarly, in addition addition to welcoming a child, to become or imitate children, as Jesus commands, is to understand our very own selves in the same manner, not as people whose significance rests in titles, honors, successes, or failures, as if those might gain or deny us favor with God or man, but in the knowledge that we are human beings loved by God. That, says Jesus, is the only way to experience the presence of his kingdom. After eight and a half years with InterVarsity at Stanford, I needed my own safe place where I could be welcomed like a little child. I discovered that place when I volunteered for our church nursery. Except for my daughter's soccer games and my travel, every Sunday for two years my wife and I served in the Lambs Sunday school class for babies three to twelve months old. My failures and successes, my importance or lack thereof as the world and Christians judged it, did not matter to little babies. My PhD didn't cut any ice with overweening parents, a few of whom grew visibly apprehensive when they saw a man in the nursery. My mentors, Evelyn in her 70s and Miriam in her 80s, taught me lots about generous compassion as they comforted crying babies, assured anxious parents, changed dirty diapers, and without fanfare, welcomed hundreds of children across many decades. They taught me as much about entering the kingdom that Jesus announced as my faculty friends at Stanford. And now for further reflection. What would our lives look like if we really believed and acted on these words of Jesus? Consider the disciples' chronic and deep misunderstandings about the true nature of God's kingdom. How do children constitute a counterintuitive and subversive example of greatness? Based upon these words of Jesus, who is really making history? And then finally, for further reflection, see the two books by Henry Nouwen. First, The Road to Daybreak, and secondly, Adam, God's Beloved. Henry Nouwen was a Dutch Catholic priest and the author of 40 books. He left his Harvard professorship to become a priest in a residential home for the mentally and physically handicapped. He died in 1996. For books this week, I review Thy Kingdom Come, an evangelical's lament, How the Religious Right Distorts the Faith and Threatens America, by Randall Balmer. New York, Basic Books, 2006, 242 pages. In addition to his credentials as a professor of American religion at Bernard College, Columbia University, Randall Balmer writes as an insider. He was born, raised, and educated within conservative evangelicalism. In addition to affirming his evangelical identity, he also declares himself a political liberal. Balmer has written elsewhere in numerous books how and why he remains grateful for his Christian heritage 
despite significance ambivalence. But in his most recent book, Thy Kingdom Come, his ambivalence turns to acerbic vilification. Evangelicalism's marriage to conservative politics, says Balmer, has poisoned public discourse, distorted the gospel so that it barely resembles the message of Jesus, betrayed its 19th century forebears who were often in the vanguard of progressive causes like abolition, and alienated a sizable number of fellow evangelicals who have tired of explaining to their friends that their Christian faith, quote, does not mean that we take our marching orders from James Dobson or Karl Rove, end quote. After a brief introduction, he devotes successive chapters to the religious rights litmus tests, abortion, homosexuality, First Amendment disestablishment, including the Ten Commandments judge, Roy Moore, school vouchers and public education, creationism, and the environment. Throughout his book, Balmer argues that the right has often acted not out of moral principle, but for political expedience. For example, school vouchers go overwhelmingly to religious schools and to wealthy people. Would right-wingers lobby for the issue so hard if vouchers were given only to families whose household income was below a certain threshold? Or again, if evangelicals really cared about abortion, why have they done so little about it, even though they have controlled the White House and Congress? Or why have they been so silent about specifics about what they would do? For example, would they jail a doctor who performed an abortion? Instead of quote-unquote pandering for power, Balmer calls evangelicals to the renunciation of power. For true religion, he argues, flourishes at the fringes. Instead of creating their own intellectual, cultural, and social ghettos, evangelicals ought to seek the common good of all society. I happen to agree with Balmer on many issues, but his book suffers from its polemical tone. In the last few pages, for example, he dismisses the quote-unquote minions and bloviating preachers, end quote, of the religious right. He's sure they will vilify him for his brave honesty. His patronizing style, though, only plays into the hands of the people he might have reached, and so he de decreases his readership and entrenches stereotypes on both sides. Balmer also neglects material that doesn't fit his simple narrative. I appreciated his argument that most evangelicals did not object to abortion because of Roe v. Wade, but some important figures like H.O.J. Brown and Francis Schaeffer surely did, and they did so very early on. Or again, intelligent design has some problems, but that doesn't mean George Marsden is wrong about hostility towards Christianity in the secular universities or that eminent scholars like the physicist John Polkinghorne don't have good things to say about intelligent design or the anthropic principle. Some of Balmer's anecdotal examples strike me as fringe, even if scary. At one point, he does give credit where it is due, acknowledging the important, if late, change of mind among some evangelicals about environmental concerns. He even suggests that environmental causes might be the wedge that separates conservative believers from conservative political ideology. 
I regretted Balmer's sarcastic tone because we need the right to read people like him and like the more balanced treatments of similar material, for example, John Meacham, American Gospel, Jim Wallace, God's Politics, or Greg Boyd's The Myth of a Christian Nation. Unlike Balmer, the latter two books affirm that the Gospel judges all political ideologies, left or right. I wish Balmer success in his mission to do what he says, quote-unquote, slay the dragon of the religious right, and I agree with him that our country would be better for it. But his chance for success would have improved if he had avoided sarcasm and sanctimony. Randall Balmer, Thy Kingdom Come. For film this week, I review a film entitled An Uncommon Kindness by the, from the year 2003. Narrated by Robin Williams, this short 60-minute film tells the story of the Flemish priest Damien de Voister, better known simply as Father Damien, who followed God's call to serve the leper colony on the Hawaiian island of Molokai. Beginning in 1866, the Hawaiian government segregated lepers to the barren island of Molokai, where they were quite literally abandoned to hostile, isolated, and horribly primitive conditions with no housing or even drinking water. In 1873, at the age of 33, Father Damien arrived to serve the 600 dispossessed people. Passionate, driven, controversial, and the object of baseless criticisms from Protestants Father Damien provided for the material needs of the people, such as with housing, food, and medical care, as well as for their spiritual needs. He even built their coffins and dug their graves. Sixteen years later, in 1889, he died in Molokai of leprosy. In 1995, Pope John Paul declared Father Damien blessed or beatified which is the second of three stages to canonization as a saint. This is a wonderful film about a marvelous saint, an uncommon kindness from the year 2003. And finally for this week, we've posted the hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways by William Cowper, who lived from 1731 to 1800. Cowper was a British poet and hymnist. He struggled throughout his life with depression, doubts, and fears. And so many people have appreciated his hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he 
he hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan his work in vain. God is his own interpreter, and he will make it plain. William Cowper, God Moves in Mysterious Ways. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for September 24th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.